it is pretty stupid uh, to start something 15 years ahead of time. It's not very smart. It really <laughs> isn't. Um, so um, not in a rural county in Eastern North Carolina, not very right. You're listening to Uli Benevitz there. He's the owner of Weeping Radish, which is North Carolina's first microbrewery. He's telling me about moving his brewery from its original location in Manio on Roanoke Island over to Currituck County next door, still along the Outer Banks. You'll hear the rest of this story and many others relating to his journey from arriving to America on a visa to NC Beer Pioneer. This is NC Travel Chat. I'm your host, Carl Hedinger. My name is Uli Benevitz. Um, I um, obviously, as you can tell by the accent, I'm not local. Um, I came to America in 1980. Um, I'm actually a farm manager, and um, I currently manage 28,000 acres of farmland in four states. And um, uh, this brewery venture was actually uh, an accident and that really wasn't intended to be anything like this. So um, um, I still, as I said, my main job is still farming. And um, the brewery just uh, came along in 85, actually. Um, 1985, my brother, who lives in Munich, uh, called me one day while I was happily managing farms and said, um, brother, I've got a wonderful idea. I'll sell you a little brewery, and she'll spit out beer and money. And um, I believed him, and I bought it. And obviously, I've had a very strange relationship with my brother ever since, um, because that's obviously not what happened. Um, the first thing that happened after I bought it was um, somebody suggested I better check with ABC. Quite honest, at that time, I didn't know what ABC was. I thought some sort of school activity or a <laughs> learning thing center. Uh, turns out to be alcohol beverage control. Um, I believe this is the only so-called civilized country that actually has such a thing. For a European to have alcohol control seems like a strange thing. Certainly in Bavaria, it is a strange thing. But anyhow, I met with ABC and they were very nice and said, um, wow, this is interesting what you're trying to do. But we hate to point out to you, it is illegal to do that in North Carolina. And um, obviously that's not a very good start to a project. Um, <laughs> but... Um, uh, but then they said, why don't you go ahead and change the law? We like the idea. Um, we'll help you. And I was truly baffled. Um, I had been in this country less than six years. And um, I had never had anything to do with government agencies. And they suggested me on little German guy on a visitor's visa would pass his own law. And um, but they meant it. And um, they actually helped me draft it. And um, we went through the House and the Senate. And... Um, in less than six months, we passed the brew pub bill allowing brew pubs to come to the state of North Carolina, which was an unbelievable thing. And I don't think it'll ever happen again that a guy on a visitor's visa can pass a law. Um, yeah. In addition to that, it was probably the only law that was ever passed without a single attorney hour being billed by anybody. So that was an amazing thing. And um, it was, of course, aided by um, then Senator Mark Bassnight, who happened to live in Mandio at the same time as you know we were living, and um, he was you know he pushed it through basically, and um, I never forget his speech on the Senate floor uh, for the first reading when he said, "Oh, this is just a little bill for a little tourism thing that we're trying to do in North Carolina." I mean, in Mandio, it'll never amount to anything. It's got no impact on revenue, nothing. <laughs> uh, just a little tourist thing. And um, as it turns out. Now we have, I don't know how many hundreds of breweries in North Carolina and over a billion dollar in economic impact. So talk about unintended consequences. <laughs> that you, certainly was that. So. Do you think he knew what was going to happen? No. We, we talked about it and people forget. At that time, there were less than 100 breweries in the entire United States. And none on the East Coast, brew pubs, 
um, Buff Wild Buffalo Bill had just started a brew um, thing in California somewhere a couple of years ago. He was the first one. You know, there was one in Pennsylvania that they were trying to get going, but I don't think anybody could have foreseen this. No, it would have been nice to, in hindsight, say, oh, yeah, we anticipated this all the way along. Absolutely not. I, I think it was just, you know, it was, and quite honest, it was early. It was just, you know, for God's sake, Colorado didn't know what a brew pub was. We, nobody anticipated this. And so 80, 86 was when you got started, is that right? Correct. July 4th, <laughs> July, July 4th, 1986, the dumbest day to open a business on the Outer Banks of North Carolina, I promise you. Um, uh, it really is. I mean, if you want to open a business on the Outer Banks, which, as you know, is highly seasonal, you want to open it in March or April, uh, May at the latest, to, to get all your kinks worked out before the season hits. Uh, wow. We were still in construction in June. <laughs> so it was, a, it was a pure nightmare. And um, uh, we, we, of course, we did everything wrong. Um, during building and during startup, and um, then we made a few mistakes we didn't think of before. Um, but um, you know, one of the mistakes was we opened it with a Bavarian theme restaurant, uh, which was amazing. It was one of the most authentic Bavarian restaurants you could have imagined. Um, umpa music playing, the, the waitresses had dundles on, God knows what. I mean, it was an insane thing to do. Uh, there aren't any German restaurants or Bavarian restaurants in the south and um yeah. i figured out 15 years later there's a good reason for it nobody wants any um but um it was it, it worked um, mostly july and august when most of the tourists down here are from ohio and pennsylvania and they're used to that kind of thing mm. so it worked like a champ in yeah. the summertime but the rest of the year um the locals made a bit of a circle around it and thought of it as a very strange thing to have in their midst and and you started out in manio right Correct. That was our first thing. I lived in Manio at the time, and um, we opened it next to the Christmas shop, which at that time was one of the biggest retail attractions on the Outer Banks. It was a huge operation then, and um, it was a perfect combination. They had, you know, they had the gift shop, and um, it was always that the, you know, the part of the family was bored shopping, and to have a brew pub there was a perfect combination because the part of the family that didn't want to go shopping could go and drink beer. And um, we had a beer garden in between. And um, then, of course, we did something which in the South, again, uh, you shouldn't do. By the way, Manu at that time was a dry town. Oh. Uh, not a very smart thing to open a brewery in a dry town, not very clever. Um, it wasn't well received for that reason alone. Wow. But um, then we, we added to this concept of the beer garden because the local mayor you know, was very much against us. And um, I asked him, I said, you know, why is it, why, why don't you like a brewery in your midst? And he said, well, you know, we are a family-friendly town and um, we just like, you know, and this just doesn't fit the family-friendly image. So I built a huge playground in the middle of the beer garden and that really put the house on fire with the local um, mayor because obviously... <laughs> But it was a huge success, don't get me wrong. It was wonderful. People loved it. The kids were playing and the parents could drink beer. It's a perfect combination. Um, but it was not what the local community wanted. So um, I, I must admit, I did rub their faces a little bit into, into this thing. And I mean, things have you know, changed. Obviously, Manteo is no longer dry. And so things are a bit better now. Before you were in Manteo, how did you end up living in North Carolina? Uh, I went to um, uh, school in Bavaria. And um, then I was supposed to go to university. and um, 
I did one semester in Munich. I literally jumped on a plane and flew to England and said, this is not for me. And then I went to an agricultural college in England, which I really loved. And um, we had real cows and things as well as college classrooms and everything else. So, and after that, finished my college education. Um, I was in, met a guy who was at, the, at that time selling farmland in America to European investors. And um, he had a client who um, wanted to buy 9,000 acres of swamp in eastern North Carolina uh, to convert to farmland. And he asked me if I would do that for him. And of course, I was 29 and I thought, wow, this is it. Um, life has arrived. And I ended up, my first stop in America was Englehart, North Carolina. My first place I lived at was Englehart, North Carolina, in the middle of nowhere. And um, I cleared 9,000 acres of swampland, which of course nowadays is um, not the thing to do anymore. Um, so I, that's how I got to Englehart. And then I lived in Manio. And then um, my then girlfriend from England joined me. And um, so we settled in Manio and lived there ever since. That's interesting. Can you just take us through, uh, you know, weeping radish as it is today and what a person can expect when they step in the door? Yeah, we changed the concept um, a little bit. And um, we, um, in about 2000, um, we ask ourselves, you know, why is this beer that we are serving draft unfiltered right there in the pub so much better than this, these pasteurized cans you buy in, in a grocery store? And, and the answer is literally food chain. Um, beer is a perishable commodity, just like food. And um, the more you do to a perishable commodity to make it less perishable, normally the more chemicals added and preservatives it takes. So we looked at the whole issue of food chain which is an interesting history. It goes back to 1943 when the Americans came to Germany and um, they saw the autobahns over there. And um, that was the beginning of our interstate system. And that revolutionized our economy in this country because anything, whatever you produce, the bigger the factory, the cheaper the unit costs. The interstate system allowed this country to build massive factories for everything, including perishables, which was food and beer, uh, which made the economy boomed because costs came rocketing down. The problem was with perishables, or is with perishables, that the longer the transportation distance is, the more preservatives it takes. So what we've done is now we have the most efficient food chain in the world, but we have the most polluted food chain at the same time. So that's how we got going. Um, the next step of the weeping radish, we looked at the food chain. How do we make our, you know, the beer was already Reinheitsgebot, no additives, no chemicals. And then in 2000, we began the idea of a farm brewery butchery all rolled into one where you can take the current food chain, which is 2,000 miles, and reduce it out to 200 miles and kick out all the chemicals out of the food system. So that was the goal. Again, we started, we started that in 2000. In 2000, Chapel Hill didn't know what farm the table was. So we were, you know, it's, and by the way, I'm not saying that um, to, to sound smart. It is pretty stupid uh, to start something 15 years ahead of time. It's not very smart. It really <laughs> isn't. Um, so, um, especially not in the rural county in Eastern North Carolina, not very bright. But anyhow, that's the goal. That was the starting point of the, the now weeping radish in Currituck. We bought 24 acres. Uh, we built a huge building in the middle of it. And um, then we start an organic farm, and uh, then we literally imported a German master butcher this time, hmm. and um, we started literally local meats and um, do uncooked and smoked sausages and everything else. So that's how we changed the concept somewhat from a Bavarian umpa and sauerkraut mentality um, to a local food and beer um, environment. And cumulating this fall, which is really exciting, this is the first year we've actually grown our own barley on the farm. 
Oh, yeah. And it's being malted in, of all places, Durham, North Carolina, by a guy, by the way, um, who was raised about 20 miles away in Bavaria from where I was raised. So we're both immigrants. So he is doing the malting. And then this fall, we'll have the first beer in Currituck grown on a, at the brewery on our own farm. So that's, oh, that's really accumulation of 20 years of um, this concept that we started in 2000. That is so cool. I guess that gets me into my next question that I was going to ask about how you came to Currituck from, from Manio. Is that, was it just your desire to, to continue farming? Uh, my farming business is completely separate. Um, you know, 24 acres in my main job is not a farm, it's a toy. If you, got, you, know, if, if you manage 28,000 acres, that's a different scale. So, no, the, the, the move was because I wanted to do this idea of local food um, and kicking out the chemicals and making it a healthier um, food system. That's really where I started from. And you couldn't do that in Manio because we had less than two acres of land. So, um, mm. plus, you know, the environment was just not conducive to something like that. We didn't have any space. Plus, in addition to that, we built probably the only brewery that was built on wooden stilts in a wooden building, which again wasn't very clever. Brewery is nothing but moisture and humidity. And about that time, the brewery actually fell through the floor. So um, it wasn't oh, wow. another not so smart decision that we made when we built the place. Because we really had no idea. As my mother would say, I, you know, when I was in school in Bavaria, I never did homework. And it shows because I think if you would do your homework before you start constructing, um, something like we try to do in Manu and in Corito, you'd never do it. You'd run a mile. But um, if you don't do any homework and you just start, um, that's how you get into these things. <laughs> and it takes years to sort it out afterwards. In a way, that's kind of the way a lot of people succeed, though, right? They keep trying until they... To yes, figure it out. No, doubt, no doubt about it. That is the way to do it. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that's, that, that's the fun part of it. You just literally learn as you go along. It requires, I mean, it's a little bit of European vision brought into this process, and that is the word craft. Um, the Europeans, or the Germans in particular, have an alternative educational path other than screaming that everyone needs to go to college. Um, they still have an apprenticeship and a craft program where all these crafts have survived for thousands of years, a butcher, the baker, um, just as well as the, anybody, the car mechanic. They literally have craft training, and that's the other component that is now, I find, very exciting. That's one thing I didn't think about you coming from Germany was the whole emphasis on apprenticeships and, and crafts. Did you do any Thing like that before you went to college or is that something that you do around college time that was well i mean i've always worked on a farm in bavaria while I, that's what my problem was at school in bavaria because i worked so much on a farm that i didn't have time to do homework or didn't want to do homework let's face it um so but that was an apprenticeship that was just working on a farm when i went to when I, the reason why i fled university life was exactly that it was nothing but sitting in a auditorium with 800 other students um, and um, it was just not me. And um, in England, it was a, that college was, it required apprenticeship programs. We had to do nine months of apprenticeship before hmm. we were even allowed to come to college. And then during college life, we had six months of apprenticeships during college life. So yes, it was an integration of apprenticeships and college work at the same time. And it hmm. made college completely a different experience. And um, it made it more relevant for me because it was hands-on. Craft, by the way, in German, means hand labor, which is a word we despise in this country. Um, but um, it really is, uh, it's 
and it makes sense if you think it through because you work with your hands as part of an apprenticeship program. I guess that that goes into the whole idea of craft brewing, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Craft brewing is one of it, but you know, think think about baristas. Think about all of these others now. Local bakeries coming back. We we are in a true renaissance of craft, and if you look at European buildings, they were all that survived 2000 years, they're all built by craftsmen. Think about it. So, mm. you know, craft is not something, <laughs> something that is recent or anything else. It, it is a vital part of a sound community. We just have given up on it because our mentality is my child is bright and my child needs to go to college. So we assume that everybody goes to college is bright. And everybody's not going to college is stupid. And that is such a detrimental mindset. Um, and um, I'm glad that the crafts are coming back to push back against this mindset. Yeah, I, I feel you on that. And speaking of, and I hate to talk about homework or preparation in a way, but uh, <laughs> regarding, you know, regarding what's going on in the world right now with the coronavirus, how did you and everybody at Weeping Radish, how have you had to prepare to to deal with the changes that have come with that? We were lucky in a way because we have uh, an outside beer garden. And um, so that was, that was you know, we didn't build that for coronavirus, obviously, um, but it, it worked in our favor because if we had to, we had to cut our seating in half and that worked. Um, we took it very seriously from the beginning. And one of the main reasons we took it seriously um, was to protect our own staff. Um, we have some wonderful ladies working for us in, on, the, on the restaurant side of it. And um, one of these ladies, her husband, has got serious health issues. And um, we looked at it from the very beginning about protecting our own staff. As, you know, and at the beginning, when we reopened after we closed down, the close down was not that detrimental to us at the beginning because it was in the spring. And um, of course, in a seasonal market, spring isn't a very big thing anyway. And as you may know, the outer banks were literally closed off. Uh, we have the advantage of having two bridges. And if you want to close the county, you just close two bridges and that's it. Um, you're done. And um, so during the lockdown, um, we, you know, nothing was going on anyway. But after the lockdown was eased up, um, we did masks immediately and disinfectant and, 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 and. And it was interesting at the beginning, we caught absolute hell from the public um, because it wasn't mandated at the beginning. And um, only when it then became mandated by the county, then our life became much easier because we didn't, we weren't abused by the public um, as much as we were at the beginning. And again, the sad thing was I wasn't the one being abused. Um, it was the staff, the hostesses, the waitresses, they were the ones getting the abuse. Which is yeah. so that is really upsetting to me because you know when I come as the owner, everybody's nice and smiles and everything else. But when the hostess at the beginning, they scream at her and everything else, and that really is not um, my kind of you know attitude. I, I despise that, quite honest. And um, so it has been obviously it's been difficult. It's impacted revenue, but again, we will you know we will get through it. It's it's just something you know that the more we accept it, the quicker we get through it. And that's, of course, the key because a lot of us don't want to accept it. Um, but, um, you know, again, the Europeans, as you know, um, have dealt with it very differently. Uh, they are much stricter. 
in these things and they have bounced back. I have got many European clients who I work with um, in my farming business and um, Italians and Germans and so on, so on, Austrians. And um, they have a very different attitude towards this. And quite honest, they can't quite understand <laughs> the American mentality towards yeah. this. But, that, you know, that's, that's, that's just, that's, it is what it is. Well, on a side note, my Christina and my wife and I, uh, we lived in South Korea and we, before we moved to North Carolina and we still have right. a lot of contacts over there. Right. I mean, they were kind of the, the model for how to yeah. handle this. Yes, so, so it is a bit disconcerting. And, and the note about people yelling at your staff, I'm just going to say to anybody listening, like, please wear your mask and don't, don't talk back when somebody asks you to wear it. Cause I mean, they're, they're they're doing their job and they're trying to keep everybody safe i think but uh that's just that's my soapbox for the minute um i appreciate that and you know, just just to just just on that very point one day particularly you know somebody yelled at the hostess we had a bit of a connection problem right there but he's just explaining that somebody at the next table called the waitress over let's let him explain the rest and um uh the gentleman at the table asked the hostess to come over and he was so kind. He said, look, I'm an, EM doc- an emergency doctor in Roanoke, Virginia, and this is our first weekend out after a month of work. And I cannot tell you how much I appreciate what you're doing because we see the other side of it. And that made everybody's day. It really yes. did make their day. That's the counterbalance that, you know, these acts of kindness, um, on the one hand, completely counterbalance the other side of it. Yeah. And hearing from people who own businesses like you talk about your experiences, I think is something that people need to hear about too. Just knowing that, you know, you got to be nice to people no matter what. We'll talk about some happier things too. Um, so I, I had a question. So you have some really awesome beers at Weeping Radish. Uh, I really liked the IPA. Per- I'm more of an IPA guy personally, uh, but I'm curious for you. And uh, are you allowed to pick a favorite? of all your beers there? Um, no, that's a bit like a, a business person um, favoring a political party. I always thought that was very stupid because you make, you make half your half your customers mad if you pick one party. So, yeah, so yeah I, don't. I, feel, I feel the same way about beers. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I was watching, uh, do you know the documentary, The Last Dance? It's about Michael Jordan. Yes. It came out recently. He uh, He got in a lot of trouble because... He yeah. wouldn't favor a political guy, and he said because um, what is it? Republicans buy tennis yeah. shoes too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's exa- that's exactly my point. If I look at Facebook, it blows my mind. Not what they say, but that these are business people. Um, uh, you know, you look at this thing. Why are you making half your customers mad? Um, it's tough enough keeping everybody happy as it is. So beer. Anyway, back to beer. It's the same thing about beer. It depends a bit on the time of year. Quite honest, and in the winter time. I like the Black Radish, uh, which is a very smooth, dark lager. Goes very well with um, steaks and, and, you know, it, it's, it's more of a food beer that goes with food. In the summertime, I love wheat beers. I like our gold because it is just a classic German-style beer. And, of course, the IPA is wonderful if you like a hoppier beer. The Germans don't, but um, I love the, you know, our IPA is not over the top hoppy, um, but it is clearly hoppier than what we normally do, and um, it covers. And my interesting about all this is that um, the first beer, when we started the brewery in 86, the brewery came, not just the brewery equipment, but it came with a German master brewer, and he was a genius. He really was fantastic. Mm. 
And um, he set the brewery up and he brewed the first beer. His PhD beer was a wheat beer. So we brewed in 86, the first beer brewed in North Carolina, Michael Brewery, was a wheat beer. And it was fantastic. The only problem was people thought it was beer that's gone off because nobody knew what a wheat beer was in 86. Nobody had a clue because every, it just wasn't available at the time. So the poor guy was truly crushed about his wonderful beer um, that nobody wanted. Um, it really is amazing now um, how sophisticated people are about beer, the variety of beer. I mean, if you would have told me in 86 that we're going to have sour beers one day, I would have laughed, laughed you know, all, the, all day long. I mean, but it is, it is all part of a spectrum. And, you know, it, it's, to me, it's amazing the direction, on a positive note, America is going. I mean, if you think about it, in 86, when I came to America, there was no coffee in America. All we had was Maxwell House. I'm sorry, that doesn't qualify for coffee. Um, boy, do we have coffee in America now. It is awesome. Um, obviously, we didn't have much beer when I got to America. Now we have more beer than I have in Europe. Uh, my first glass of wine in America was something red in a glass with an ice cube floating in it. It was horrific. So the sophistication as, that comes with the craft movement in this country is truly breathtaking. It really is. And um, food is next. I really feel this farm-to-table movement is at its beginning, and the charcuterie certainly is at the beginning. Um, but we will see, and bread making, my God, it's flourishing. It really is amazing. So it's a very positive, you know, thing. The, the coronavirus is a little bit of a dip on the way up there, but but we are getting there. We are really getting there. That's a good point about coffee. I mean, coffee here <laughs> is just immaculate now. Uh, it really is. I mean, as a European, literally, literally when I, when, in my first years in America, I went to Europe every year. And um, the first thing I did is drank a rice beer and a cup of coffee because I couldn't get either of it in America. It really wasn't available. And now, to me, German coffee really all tastes the same. Um, it's a higher quality than Maxwell House, obviously, but, but it's fairly very much the same. Whereas in this country, wow, um, I certainly don't have to go to Germany anymore to, to find beer or coffee. Quite the opposite. You go to Munich, and my God, they have microbrewed beer at Munich Airport. Really? Um, you know, it's funny that the American microbrewing has literally gone over to Europe. So we are leading the way um, and have literally brought microbrewing back to Europe. I was wondering about that because when I, so this was about, for me, I feel like American microbrewing probably took off early 2010s, could have yes. been before then. Um, and when I came back around 2015, they, breweries were everywhere, and especially yeah. in North Carolina. I once interviewed and I spoke with the owner of Full Steam Brewing in yep. Durham. Oh, and, I know. Uh, the reason I, I wanted to connect with him was I love his brewery. We actually had our yeah. wedding reception there. And uh, also because of the whole Pop the Cap movement. Pop the Cap surely was a huge movement. And it, you know, it, to, watching Pop the Cap, the, the, the legalization of this, the legal process unfolding, or the legislative process, more to the point, to me was frightening because it showed how lovely, naive we were in 86. Um, because even the lobbyists on the other side didn't know what this was all about. And boy, the Pop the Cap guys battled and battled and battled because by that time the lobbyists had woken up. 
and um, were fighting this all every step of the way. And of course, I love these lobbyists because after it was p- passed, they all tapped to the pop the cap guys on the shoulder and said, "Well done, you!" Um, but they have wow. <laughs> they fought them all the way through the process. <laughs> That's interesting. So when you're not in that area of Grandy or Crotuck County, uh, is there somewhere in North Carolina elsewhere that you like to go? You know, we um, we love the mountains. And um, we just, you know, don't get to travel much other than to Europe once or twice a year. Um, but we love Asheville. We love Boone. And um, it's, of course, fun for me to, to go to these places now because <laughs> there are all these breweries there. And um, it really is. And quite honest, these microbrewing and this whole system of local food, local beer, craft um, is actually more generic or more... F- rooted in the mountains than it is on the coast Hmm. Um, they have look at Asheville my god they have taken craft to a completely different level Um, so um, yes what am I doing down here on the coast I'm not quite sure I don't fish I don't boat I don't play golf so I'm not quite sure what I'm doing there because the, the craft movement belongs is rooted in the mountains of North Carolina that's where it really together with the music, it all fits much mm. better there than it does on the coast. I, I have to say that. So um, I love it up there. Can, can I put you on the spot and ask you for your favorite brewery in the mountains? That, you would put me on the spot for that. You really would. Um, <laughs> I mean, obviously, I'm great friends with Oscar from Highland Brewing. Uh, and um, because he is my compadre, we started more or less, you know, he started a couple of years after, after us. And um, we've been friends ever since. And we've done a couple of events together in Washington, D.C. Um, there was a, at the Smithsonian, there was a um, panel discussion about immigrant brewers. And um, they only had four breweries in America there. Two of them were from North Carolina. It was Oscar and me. So, um, so Oscar and I go way back and um, he's a great friend. So, um, you know, Highland is, and it's interesting what they're doing. They have, you know, shifted again more into the entertainment side of it, which is great because it fits the local theme. You have, you bring locals together. And that's the thing about one last swipe at politics. Um, (laughs) The the National Brewers um, Association tells you, you know, you need to get involved in your community and have political events at your brewery. I couldn't disagree more because if I would have a political event in my brewery for one of the parties, everybody would assume I was a member of that party and the other people wouldn't show up and vice versa. Even if I have them in the same week, it could (laughs) only cause trouble one way or the other. Even if I have them in consequent days, um, it would cause friction and trouble and whatever. So again, you know, we need to leave our tribalism behind and talk more about communities and not tribes. Um, and I hope that the brewing movement and the brew pub movement and the uh, local food movement, all of these movements combined, um, is, I hope it is an anti-tribal movement um, in a political sense, and, and it brings people together. It is tough today to not pick a side either way. And a note on Highland, uh, we were there probably about three, four weeks ago. They also have a very large outdoor area, kind of like, like you in a way. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. And that's, and you see that more and more, you know, breweries are building event spaces, indoor and outdoor. We did something really crazy in 2008 or something, 
um, you talk about stupid, um, we put up a 5,000 square foot um, tent and built an ice skating rink. Now we were guaranteed <laughs> the first brewery with an ice skating rink. And um, the concept was quite easy that, um, you know, the concept was the more you drink, the less it hurts when you fall down on the ice. Um, and it worked. Um, but again, the funny thing about that one was we built an area on, on ice, which we fenced in for the little kids um, so they wouldn't get run over by the big kids. And um, of course, as you know, when little kids get on ice for the first time, um, they can't really walk. And so what we did is we gave them 50 liter beer kegs as walkers. And um, it was a huge success. Every kid walked around with a beer cake on the ice. The funny thing was not watching the kids. The funny thing was watching the grandparents absolutely in horror about their grandchild with a beer keg on ice. They would refuse to take pictures of their grandchildren. So I thought that was a lovely cultural awakening, right? <laughs> That's hilarious. Um, and another, another um, outdoor area that I, I want to give a shout out to. I mean, I love the one at Sierra Nevada there out in uh, yes. H- Henderson County, but also um, if you've ever been out to the one in uh, Cumberland County, uh, dirt bag. Not yet. I heard about it, but I have not be- been there yet. That is a wonderful space. And I hope you get to make it there at some point. I want to, and I'm slow down in the brewery whenever that's going to be. I'm just trying to, I'm, I'm, I'm 68, I think now, and um, I'm trying to um, reduce my activity from two full-time jobs to one full-time job. So um, w- once I have one full-time job, I, I hope I can be able to travel more in the mountains. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. And so before I let you go, I just want to ask you, where can people find more information about Weeping Radish? On the website, we are basically, we don't distribute at this point in time um, anywhere other than hyperlocal. Um, so you can, you know, just come to the website and um, see what we do. And um, we do ship beer and sausages within the state of North Carolina. So, um, you know, we can ship mm-hmm. and um, it's, but only within the state. Beer right we ship anywhere, but sausages only within the state. So online, weepingradish.com. If you have a name like Weeping Radish, um, which is wonderful, you, you get your own website and, I mean, your, your own internet address. If you Google Weeping Radish, you only end up with one response. That's it. So, um, And how did you come up with the name Weeping Radish? Ah, because we knew Google was coming one day and then we would be unique on Google. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> wow. <laughs> no, I actually, um, it was another stupid thing. I'm, I'm, um, I had a partner at that time who I explained to um, Bavaria. I tried to explain to a guy in, from Roanoke Island about Bavaria that we have beer gardens over there. And you eat these radishes, uh, which, you know, the spinal radish begins to weep. And they serve that whole radish on a plate, weeping right there. And that's your appetizer. And what you do is you take those slices and you dip them in liquid and then you eat them with your, with your beer. And, of course, that liquid is pure salt water, makes you extremely thirsty, make you drink an awful lot of beer. So that's, that's how the name came. And um, um, we tried to um, – I found them in 86, and we put them on the menu, and nobody bought them. And then we tried to give them away as a free appetizer and nobody wanted them. And then we decided it was time to quit. So um, every now and then we learn a lesson. (laughs) Uli, thank you so much for taking time to chat with me today. Really wish you all the best, you know, through, through what's going on right now. And, and as, as the first NC microbrew pub, if I got that terminology, right. That is Um, true. And you're also the oldest brewery and restaurant in the U S is that right? 
That is correct. Um, in the early 90s, we were invited to the Chicago National Restaurant Association show. And um, I didn't even know that they existed. And um, we said, why on earth are you calling us? And they said, well, we've done our research and you're the oldest full-size restaurant brewery in the United States. So we got a trip to Chicago out of that one. So there you That's go. That's awesome. Thank you so much. And seriously, best of luck to you through all this. I hope to come back because I really love the sausages and the beer cheese and the beer, of course. But Thank I you. mean, the food, the food complements the beer. And you re- really have a special place there. And I hope, hope we can keep coming back there for a long time. Thank you so much. I mentioned this at one point during the interview, and it's something I can't let go of. You know, people like Uli do things that they themselves may view as stupid. I think you need to take that risk. I mean, he was really hard on himself throughout the interview. You heard that. And yeah, there are things to lose, but I think the lack of action is a bigger risk than doing the act itself. And what do you think? Do you think Uli is crazy for what he did or an innovator, or is he both? You can let us know by email at info at nctripping.com. You can also tweet at me at nctripping with the hashtag nctravelchat. And before I let you go, this is to guarantee people listen all the way through. We just released a book. Yay! Based on our NC bucket list. You can buy a digital version of it from our site. Just go to nctripping.com and search for the bucket list book. The URL will be in the show notes. Whenever you go to buy it, we'll give you a promo code right now. It is NCTRIPPING2020, and that'll get you 20% off. Thank you for listening. I look forward to sharing the amazing people of North Carolina with you again. And until next time, we hope to see you out there safely exploring North Carolina too.